Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Welcome back to the latest edition of the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel. We are taping this Sunday morning. Stu, I got home late, late last night from the East Coast. Well, he's from Ohio. It felt like East Coast. But um, it was a wild night in the Pac-12. A couple of amazing games. Chaos from the conference that seems to be rooted in it. Um, Your biggest takeaway was what? Well, my biggest takeaway is that in hindsight, I wish I hadn't fallen quite so far on the Oregon bandwagon. Um, they had been so they had been beating people so badly in the, I don't know six seven weeks leading up to the game yesterday that it was easy to get caught up in that and not realize that first of all they were going to have to beat three maybe even four more top twenty five teams to make the playoff, and then. I, I worried for the Washington game <clears throat> when our colleague Max Olson put up his stop latest stop rate rankings uh, earlier in the week. And Oregon is 127 and stop rate is his. Um, it's a simple concept. It's percentage of drives where you uh, kept them from scoring. Um, but it's pretty indicative. And it's like, oh, they're 127 for all the crap we gave USC about their defense and UCLA. theirs is just as bad. And they're going to play Michael Penix this week. And sure enough, I mean, granted, it went right down the last second. We can talk about the bizarre Dan Lanning decision, but um, that defense was not going to take that team to the playoff. And I think we can say the same of UCLA after Jalen Jaden Delora um, had his way with them in Arizona's big upset. Yeah, I think one thing that jumps out at me is you've had some spectacular quarterback play in the Pac-12. Obviously, Bo Nix has been a revelation in this Bo Nix 2.0 version. Another transfer, obviously, Michael Penix Jr., who was terrific in 2020 uh, during the pandemic year for Indiana and has ties to Kalen DeBoer from his time as the OC there. I mean, he has electric arm talent, which you saw on, I mean, that throw, like that whole shot throw, very few guys in college could attempt it, much less pull it off. Now, there's the thing with him that's a little bit, 
I don't know. I remember a couple of weeks ago, they had an ESPN, I think it was an ESPN Friday night game. And the sideline reporter had done this glowing hit about just how electric Michael Penick's arm is. And right after he said it, he threw a bad pick six in the game. And there are moments where the decision-making, and I don't know if it's just like he's such a playmaker by, you know, that sometimes, and we see this a little bit with DTR, we saw it in the past, where, you know what, they would just be so aggressive at times and it would come back to bite him. You saw a really bad red zone interception from him yesterday against against Oregon. You're almost thinking, all right, you're not going to overcome that. And then obviously they overcame it. But I think when you go through this list, and it's an impressive list of almost all the guys are, are dual threat guys. Bo Nix, Caleb Williams at U- USC, DTR, Michael Penix. Delora was amazing last night for Arizona. I mean, just so aggressive. You know, that's not even talking about you know, Cam Rising is is very talented, and he's a he he can burn you with his legs and his arm. I mean, it's a it's a really impressive group of playmakers. But the other thing is, you look at it as you said. I don't even say you alluded to it. You know, USC's defense is awful. UCLA's defense is really shaky. Uh, Oregon's defense very suspect. You know, you go down the list. Washington's had you know had sizable issues there too. It's just um, it's a little bit of the chicken and egg thing. And I think if you're not a Pac-12 person, you go, yeah, well, because the defenses are so bad. That's why, you know, this guy goes from the SEC and lights it up, or this guy goes from the Big Ten and now looks like he should be an NFL, you know, possible first or second rounder. It's also, I mean, he just throws the ball a lot in that offense. I was just looking here and <clears throat> passed. He's thrown it 60 more times than than – Delora only, I think he's thrown it more than 40 times more than anybody else in the Pac-12. Well, other than Will Rogers at Mississippi State, who plays in Leach's offense, he has the most pass attempts per game of any Power 5 quarterback, and he has managed to throw six interceptions. And I was watching that game, too, where the announcer, I said the announcer jinxed him. But it might be just a matter of you, you throw that many passes, you're eventually going to have one you regret. Uh, you're right about the, you know, it's a, it's a, Comparisons were made last night in during the Oregon Washington game on Twitter to like the Big 12 from a decade or so ago, where it just felt like all offense, no defense. And that's kind of what the top of the conference is this year. It's been exciting and it seemed like it was putting them in a position to have multiple CFP contenders. But after the UCLA loss, after the Oregon loss, it's really just down to USC. And, you know, who I think is strange has for all the talk in the offseason about Lincoln Riley, tell me if you feel this is the case. I mean, the guy got as much coverage as any new head coach, but they've kind of, they're not getting that much pub for a team that is nine and one. It kind of blew my mind. Um, the stat that they're nine and one for the first time since 2008, the Pete Carroll, like the last great Pete Carroll team. Like this is exactly what they were hoping to be when they hired him. Now, this game. Well, you know why? I mean, there's a, there's an obvious answer why they're not getting that much hype. They haven't beaten a top 25 team. They haven't, they haven't even, play, like, they played Utah. They lost to them at Utah. It was like obviously a really good game. But, like, beyond that, you go through this list. Rice, really bad. Stanford, horrific. Fresno State, not what they'd been. Oregon State's actually pretty good. Arizona State, really bad. Washington State, eh. Um, Utah, we said, lost to them. Arizona, much improved. Still not, you know, going to be a fringe. Be lucky to make a bowl. Cal, really bad. Colorado epically bad. These are a lot of bad teams. It's not to say that they are not a dangerous offense or anything about, but when you don't play anybody 
or almost when you don't beat anybody who's even remotely close, you're not going to probably get, especially when you were a four win team the year before. I don't care how much Colin Coward gasses you up in the off season. You know, if you don't, if you were horrible before, um, you know, it's going to take a minute for them. Like even if they, they beat UCLA and then they, who do we think they might play if they beat UCLA? Well, in, the well in between, they got to play Notre Dame, who's going to be a yeah. top twenty-five team. But who do they like? Who would they get if you? Oh, it's a it's a jumbled mess. Like nobody can figure out all those tiebreakers. Just I know guess. that. Just guess. I well, let me think here. Well, if they beat UCLA, that's not UCLA. Um, Washington. It's it might it's going to be Oregon or Washington. I would think right. Um, yeah, that'll I depend mean, on. Well, Utah. If Utah wins out, they go. I don't know, Bruce. It's there's like three different. There's a. I mean, we need John Wilner to get on here and explain to us all the tiebreaker scenarios because now that they got rid of divisions and it's just the top two, you can have like three, four teams tied for it, and then they didn't all play the same opponents. Uh, it's going to be. I mean, I think there's a coin flip somewhere in the list of tiebreakers. But look, next week Utah plays at. Look at it this way: next week Utah plays at Oregon. That's an elimination game, basically. USC plays UCLA. That's an elimination game, basically. So you'll have a much, much clearer picture after next weekend. Um, my question is, do you think USC can do it? Do you think, and, and they had a terrible loss the other night. Travis dies out for the season. He's been such a, uh, you know, everybody talks about Caleb Williams and understandably so, but he's been a huge part of it as well. Um, defense still suspect. They got to beat UCLA this weekend in the, Correct me if I'm wrong. Final home game for DTR. Uh, I believe so. I like you think that. that guy might come out to play on Saturday. And um, by the way, DTR absolutely torched, uh, torched USC last year. Now, look, I don't know if, if UCLA will have Kaz Allen back. They missed him last night. He is a, he's the fastest guy in the program and he is a big playmaker. I don't, you know, I, I think UCLA you know, they go as DTR goes kind of thing. You know, I don't, I, I think this game, like last year was 62 to 33. I think it was at 95 points. I think there will be probably around that many, if not more this year. I would not expect, I would not be surprised if this game was in the fifties on both sides, like 50, 54 to 50 kind of game. Well, we've talked about mostly about the teams that lost. I want to give credit to Kalen DeBoer and Washington. It really has gone full circle for them. It was the, Oregon game last year that Jimmy Lake, you know, struck a player, got suspended, eventually got fired. And it just felt that program just felt, I don't want to say rock bottom, but it, yeah, rock bottom. I mean, from what they were under Chris Peterson to what they had become just two years into Jimmy Lake, for him to come in and have them, um, you know, they're going to be probably a top 15 to 20 team in the rankings this week. They've got a chance to play in the Pac-12. And beating Oregon is always extremely satisfying for that program. Uh, for a first-year coach who's just kind of flown under the radar, that's a great job. And Jed Fish, you know what's crazy? Over, yeah. Let me before you get to Jed Fish. What's kind of crazy is, you know, I don't think either one of us think much of of ASU right now. They're three and seven. Um, you know that they had back-to-back losses. They lost that Friday night against UCLA, where you say his offense was just sizzling, and and you know, a lot too their old player made a, you know, caused them problems. And then the next week, I don't know if there was a little bit of hangover effect, but they lost at Arizona state 45, 38. I mean, after that win there, um, I, I don't think, you know, if, if, if they end up in the, in the Pac-12 title game and they beat, 
let's say to beat USC after beating Oregon on the road, you know, there's not going to be a two loss team out of the, out of the PAC 12 with any hopes of making the playoff, but still a pretty amazing roller coaster ride given you know, Jimmy Lake goes three and one in, in the pandemic. Then last year is a complete, you know, just a complete implosion and they make a really good hire. I think you and I both really like this hire and it is, I mean, they're, they're fun to watch. They are really exciting. And I think to some degree, because of, you know, and Bo Nix and Oregon got everybody so excited, and rightfully so, I feel like they kind of flew under the radar a little bit. And they flew under the radar because of that ASU loss. Like it just. Yeah. And also because the Michigan State win that really, you know, was kind of their their break onto the scene moment got devalued pretty quickly. Well, also, I think, you know, they played UCLA. I think they were the favorite. And I think people were expecting them to win because UCLA hadn't really, you know, had struggled in their wins a little bit and had been less than impressive. And then UCLA jumped them. And now, you know, here we are again. As far as Arizona, I mean, you and I both, you know, felt like Jed Fish after, a, you know, a one year of trying to trying to get that thing to just figure, you know, in the right direction. They made some great recruiting additions both in the portal obviously with Jaden Delora um and especially skill guys which you've seen them add and upgrade and he's a really good offensive coach I think it was you know for a lot of those guys uh you know he has a bunch of guys who have LA ties deep LA ties on that staff for them to win that game on that stage at the Rose Bowl you know Jimmy Doherty was on chip staff the defensive coordinator Johnny Nansen came from that staff obviously Brendan Carroll coached a lot of games in Los Angeles on his dad's staff. I mean, that's a, that's a big statement win for a program that recruits so heavily in Los Angeles and in Southern California. Um, you know, like people doubted that higher. I think a lot of people, you know, you know, wanted Brent Brennan to get the job and it was like, wait, they hired Jed fish. That hire is looking, you know, he did everything right, you know, like around the program building it up, getting people kind of on his side, both internally and externally. And that hire now is looking really shrewd. Yeah. And as you're talking about these guys, I'm thinking, what's the commonality here? You know, they all got a great quarterback out of the portal and, you know, Washington is not doing what it's doing now without Michael Penix. I don't think, you know, Jaden Delora has been huge for Arizona, Caleb Williams, obviously you look at Brian Kelly coming into LSU, bringing in, a Pac-12 quarterback and now playing in the SEC title game, it's really accelerated the ability to turn around a program. If you can get, well, you can use the portal obviously for anything, but in particular, a star quarterback, that's going to lift your program pretty quickly. Um, Stu, on on that, it's interesting because like, I always felt like Joe Burrow, you know, he's the greatest example of it. It was such an outlier. And a lot of times, you know, you'll get more of, you know, it feels like it's more Spencer Rattler where, the guy it turns out he'll get the job and he'll be kind of what he was to some degree before. Uh, but in these cases, a fresh start has been, and some of the guys were really good at their old place. Like, I mean, look, Washington state's quarterback lit it up at FCS and he's been very good. Um, he's certainly been Cam Ward has been very good in the pac 12, but you're just seeing so many different, um, so many, so many different impact guys who can rally. I mean, obviously, you know, we can talk about LSU now, like yesterday, it wasn't, it wasn't Jaden Daniels, the guy, you know, it was obviously, you know, Harold Perkins was insane, the, the freshman, but I think just what you've seen from a leadership, from a stability standpoint, 
And from a playmaking sense, that's that's to me the the biggest difference in these programs is what you get when this new guy comes in because it's usually a guy who's played a bunch. You know, the the one maybe who had who hadn't to some degree, like one when, when you had like like say Will Levis at Kentucky. You know, he really kind of flourished. He hadn't been playing much at Penn State, but most of these guys had played. It was just they were looking, I think, for a fresh start or something different. And it's played out. It seems like it's played out so much better than not this year than it did in, in, in the previous years. I agree with that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. So LSU, you mentioned LSU. They are going to, they have clinched their birth. They're going to the SEC title game. Not something anyone of us would have predicted in the summer. Also not something I would have predicted after they uh, lost that opener to Florida State. Um, but here we are. And uh, like I said, you know, Jaden Daniels deserves a lot of credit. But yesterday's game against Arkansas was a defensive struggle. And one defensive player in particular took over this game. And he's a freshman. Yeah. I, and what's interesting to me, like this guy was a huge recruit coming up, Harold Perkins. And he was hyped up. And he, the you know, you noticed him right almost from the beginning of the season, right? But, you know, they have other really talented guys on the defense. B.J. Ogilary is, is a really explosive guy. This guy is different, though. And the comparison I had for him, and I, I was hesitant to put it out, and then all of a sudden I'm like, man, now it's like these, even the play that, like there was another forced fumble that didn't get ruled a forced fumble, so it could have been technically five uh, sacks. And instead of four sacks, two forced fumbles, but like, I was like, man, there's some Micah Parsons here. And to me, it's like my, Micah Parsons is in like the, I don't want to say the LT category, but like kind of in that direction. And what we've seen from Harold Perkins and what's, what's, you know, what hit me yesterday after the game is obviously we talked about Texas A&M had this, the highest ranked recruiting class of all time. He would have been, he had decommitted there. He was originally, you know, lined up to go to A&M. And man, could they use him, you know, so it's, well, it's, they uh, could u- really use him if he could play quarterback. Um, but, but I hear what you're saying. I, I don't even th- like, I don't, you know, you, I, Connor Wegman struggled yesterday. I think their issues are way beyond quarterback at, at A&M. Yeah. Well, they're all across the board, but um, I mean, I think, you know, that Micah Parsons comparison is good. I saw some of our draft uh, people on Twitter throwing out Vaughn Miller. I just think that, in the case of, let's say, certainly Parsons is a pretty recent example, even Will Anderson, generally speaking, you, they show flashes as a freshman, and then they really turn it on the next year. To be this, I mean, he's one of the best, in my opinion, one of the best, I don't know, handful 
of defensive players in all of college football as a true freshman, and that's saying something. Yeah, I mean, we've seen guys, but they're usually bigger, bigger guys like Jadavian Clowney. You know, like there were Miles Garrett. Some of those guys were more okay. They're they're bigger edge guys. This guy is just so his closing speed is crazy fast, right? And he's not as big as as Micah Parsons is either, but you know, he's still young. I mean, he's 18. So um, he's going to be really, really special for them, I think. And, you know, like uh, we touched on this a little bit, but just, you know, I didn't get to see any of the Alabama Ole Miss game yesterday. And I, at one point it was 24, 24. And we had to, I think we had to you know, get on a plane and then we had no Wi-Fi. but is there anything you took away from, like, was this the year, if you're Lane Kiffin, when this should have been the year you won the West? Well, I don't know about year you won the West, but they should have beaten Alabama yesterday, plain and simple. Like, that game was theirs for the taking. Um, I thought they outplayed them for most of the game. I mean, I'm watching it thinking, okay, let's all get our um, what is Nick Saban going to do stories ready because they're about to be 9-3. and three. Um, And they pull it out in the end. And really um i heard lane's explanation afterward it makes sense but alabama couldn't stop uh their running game couldn't stop judkins he gets them down to the 14 and they proceed to call four pass plays in a row and two of them the the protection broke down and jackson dark got stuffed now he said because zach evans is out and judkins was really their only guy that he was tired right so he couldn't just keep doing it and he thought alabama's defense at that by then would be focused on the run but they really weren't so um so that's what happened but I, I the game was theirs again for the taking they were the better team and Alabama the way I would put it is uh you know Bryce Young is still superhuman but the rest of that team just looks kind of ordinary uh very uncharacteristic they they were making more self-inflicted mistakes more weird penalties and I just thought okay well they're gonna lose and and it'll be like kind of a reset moment now because they won that game and because I don't think they're losing the iron bowl, they'll get to 10 and two, they'll go to the sugar bowl and it won't feel that different than the typical Alabama season, but it is. Okay. So you mentioned your, you know, the iron bowl and Auburn and um, one of the cool stories in what is, what has been a you know dreadful year for Auburn football is Cadillac Williams. One of the, one of the great players they've produced and I think it's been fun to watch him on social media and people see his passion and they, his love for the program, his love for his players. And, you know, I, I mean, I think you have to feel good when you see that get rewarded. I mean, it, it yeah. was just, a, um, you know, this is, this is not our shout out session or anything like that, but I just think that like, Sometimes we were on the plane yesterday and Leinert is sitting like diagonal from me. And I tweeted something out about Auburn and he goes, he was like, why are you watching that kind of thing? And, you know, it was like, I'm flipping back on a bunch of different stuff on, on YouTube TV on the plane or whatever. And I don't know. It, it's, it's just, we've seen stories a little bit like this. Maybe the player wasn't as great as he was in college, but somebody who's like at their alma mater and, they're they're kind of an obvious choice to be interim, and they're and they have that moment, and it's almost like it's a cleansing for the for the for the for the fan base and the community around it. I just thought it was pretty awesome. What was Leinert watching instead? Like a replay of the Bush Push game for the eight thousandth time? Oh, not nice. Not. Oh, nice. I was, mean, I love. I like Matt. 
but you know, he's do you, not, he but hasn't, do you, do you? No, no, I do. But I just think uh, I worked with him. He was very nice to me. Um, he's a smart guy. I just comments like that. Um, he was watching Texas TCU. So I, which was an important game to watch. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, I think we on this show and a lot of the people we interact with are of the opinion or of the opinion that there's no such thing as bad college football. And in fact, sometimes bad college football is the most entertaining college football. And you're right. Like those teams were three and six, both of the teams were three and six. And it felt like huge stakes game. I don't know. I don't know another way to put it. Like Cadillac, you know, trying to, trying to get a win, trying to get some pride restored there. And Jimbo is trying to avoid his sixth straight loss. Um, and which he, which happened. And so, I don't know. I was, more focused on other games myself, but I, I get why you would be kind of riveted by it. Uh, I didn't think AM could get this bad. You know, as, as things unfolded early in the season, you're like, well, they're not going to be a playoff team. They're not going to be an SEC contender. But, I mean, oh no, they might be like a seven and five team, but no, they're, they're looking at four and eight, assuming they get by UMass this week. Um, I think that that's. They're lucky the... it's UMass and not UConn, by the way. I know. <laughs> I know. UConn, they're probably losing. One of the most stunning of developments of the season. It really is. It just then the idea that a team that's recruited that well, that is two years removed from finishing in the top five, they are as of this moment because hail to Vandy. Vandy gets the breaks the three year losing streak, beats Kentucky. As of this moment, AM has the worst record in the SEC of all 14 teams. Incredible. It is incredible. It really is. I mean, they are two and nine in their last 11 games against FBS opponents. That is amazing that they are that bad with that kind of, like, they're basically, like, Ari Wasserman probably dry heaves every time somebody mentions <laughs> his A&M to them. Like, they're the anti-star uh, matters. Yeah, it's, it's, it is really amazing to see how much like you said, I'm not surprised that they're they didn't live up to be a number six, but like at the very least, you know, be six and six, you know, yeah. or whatever. But like you're right, they're I mean they're going to play LSU. I'd be surprised if they beat them. They're four and eight. Um, to fall that bad, and it's again, this isn't like year one or year two from Jimbo. It's like we've talked a lot about AM and and it, but it's just like it's this dumpster fire that just keeps raging can i share like one one kind of uh, like a little kind of mind-blowing thing sure. do you know how many you know you talked about vandy you know how many power five teams have worse records than texas a&m i can think of one <laughs> well alma mater. it's your, your <laughs> alma mater colorado one other uh shoot who are we forgetting um it's nobody in the Big 12. You say Colorado Northwestern. I remember Stanford, before this. Oh, is it Georgia, Georgia Tech? Georgia Tech. No, it's no? not Georgia Tech. You're close. Georgia Tech's four and six, by the way. And, and credit to them for that. Uh, it must be somebody in the ACC. It is. That I'm forgetting. Um, not Duke, who is seven and three and might just crack the committee top 25 this week. All right, I give up. Virginia Tech. Oh yeah, they're why that's funny. I just wrote about them in final thoughts. Why were they slipping my mind? Yeah, that's a that's a that's one that that that's an eyebrow raiser. They're two and eight, 
And this is their first seven game losing streak since 1951. It is, but like, so when we go through that, that list of teams, you know what they kind of, I don't say they all have in common, but like, so your alma mater and Stanford, both have coaches who are kind of made men there. You know, they're, they're guys who are kind of like Jimbo Fisher. Well, no, but those guys were guys who are proud, proud products of their alma maters. They're at a place where winning is not seen the same way. You know, obviously Stanford is a great academic institution and, and um, you know, that is a, you know, they do look at it differently, but your alma mater also, I don't think they, they look at things the way Texas A&M does. Um, and then after that, you get to Virginia Tech, which is a, you know, first year head coach, right? So it's like, and I'm not saying there isn't any pressure because I think there's pressure mounting, you know, certainly at Stanford, but um, just that aspect of it is like, wow, to be that bad when you've been this far along, when the expectations are this high crazy and Colorado has fired their coach so and you can't even play the while well, they're in the SEC card because they lost to Appalachian State who I believe is five and five so it's just they're just really bad there's no other way to put it and that clip of him after the game saying the offense is the offense you know vert, verts are verts smash smash like does not sound like a man who's who's accepted reality yet that that he needs to change things not to go on a Stanford tangent but there, there. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens in a few weeks there, because David Shaw's always been considered untouchable, but they are. This will be their third time in four years going four and eight or worse, uh, unless they can beat both Cal and BYU. But I don't see that happening. They don't have a single running back healthy. Um, well, Cal, oh, Cal's really bad too, though. Still, Cal's, they could definitely beat Cal. I don't think they can beat BYU. But anyway, um, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen if he's going to finally. He's never fired an assistant. Maybe he's going to have to make some changes. Maybe some assistants will. But he's also read the, play the room and move too. on. He's like Jimbo Fisher. It's him, though. He's the play yeah. caller. So yeah, and there was an. I mean, I didn't watch much of that game, but I I turned it on and it was like forty-two to seven, and it looked really cold. And David Shaw's in his you know really puffy, heavy winter coat, looking at the play sheet, calling out the plays. Maybe maybe something will work now. Down forty-two to seven, it was really sad, and they kept. I mean, the announcers, um, let's see, it was Dave Pash and Dusty Dvorak just kept hammering, like, look at their record from up till 2018, look at their record since. You'd hear a couple of references to, you know, we know David Shaw can coach, we know he's done this, we know he's done that, but nobody wants to come out and say, but they're terrible now, uh, which they are. Um, but there are two, win- two wins against Power Five or against uh, FBS opponents, came by a combined three points, not to devalue them. But their two wins came by a combined three points. I think seven of their eight losses have been by double digits. I mean, the last three games, UCLA, Washington State, and Utah, I mean, I'm not doing the math quick, but I'm guessing that's by an average of like 35 points a game. Like, they haven't even been close. The only game that they were close that they lost was home against Oregon State 28 Which they should have won. It was a crazy, crazy play at the end. I mean, somehow amidst all that, they went and won at Notre Dame. And to me, it's the strangest result of the whole season, given what Notre Dame has done since then. But, um, you know, that Arizona State win, they didn't score a touchdown. Um, it was just... Let me, let me put you on the spot here. If I said there is a 25% chance David Shaw is not the head coach there next year, would you say over or under? I think that's around the right number. What I don't know is if that would be because he walked away or they fired him. Like... People don't 
and I couldn't possibly explain this on a podcast, the, the, the kind of the, the larger issues of academics versus athletics there. I don't think it's a administration as a university doesn't really care if they win at football or not. Um, so it's hard for me to see them firing him, even though any other coach with that record of the last four years would have already been fired. But I don't know if he reads the room and says, you know, in this new environment, the transfer portal, we can't take transfers. We're playing teams that whose whole lineups are transfers. Um, I need to just call it call it a day. I don't know. It might be the exact opposite. He might say, you know, I care too much about my alma mater. I'm going to make this right. But I finally have to change my staff and change my philosophy a little bit. But we will wait for that to unfold after Thanksgiving weekend. I swear I came into this podcast with a plan to talk about TCU much sooner, right now. Than, much sooner than 30 minutes into the podcast. I think it was the S we got to LSU and we just kind of stayed in that conference. Um, look, I didn't think they were going to beat Texas. Vegas didn't think they were going to beat Texas. The committee, I think, thought by now they'd probably be like have three losses. But here they are, 10 and 0, one in Austin, you know, in a fashion I would not have seen coming. Uh, it was a defensive game. It wasn't a typical TCU um, offensive shootout. In fact, their offense really struggled. They got a couple big plays like they always do. And then I don't know. I don't know whether to say what an amazing performance by the TCU defense. They had it in them all along, or this was just something we've seen from Texas too many times over the years where they've got Quinn Ewers, the hotshot quarterback. They've got Bijan Robinson. They've got Xavier Worthy. And they didn't score an offensive touchdown in this game at home at night. How does that happen? Yeah, I, I look, I mean, this was the lowest amount of yards that Texas produced since like the opener in 2015 when they got destroyed by Notre Dame. I mean, under 200 yards, yours was looked really lost. And like he looked like a young quarterback who was not prepared. And he was 0 for 6 from the start. He just really, really struggled. And, you know, again, credit to TCU's defense. What I think is good about this especially is this was TCU winning with a different way you know their defense had been shredded at times this year now they have a ton of speed on that side of the ball too but I thought you know for people and we're going to have TCU this week our crew is going there they are going to Waco they play Baylor who's had an okay year but obviously not a great year it's not a like if you look at it now after this week I bet you that for most people, and I would put myself in this camp, that thought somewhere along the way, TCU was going to stumble. Um, now, after that, and you look at what the rest of the Big 12 is, I'm not saying they're like, I feel like that strongly, like they're Georgia, in, uh, the, the Georgia of the Big 12. But now, I'm like, man, I feel like there's actually a pretty good chance they're going to make it through. I mean, I, before, that, I, I thought like, the game they would trip up would be last night. Um, but... Like, look, I mean, we've talked about this. I think this year's Big 12 is not easy. So, like, going to play at Baylor is not easy. But on the other hand, Kansas State just played at Baylor yesterday and clobbered them. Like, Baylor's been kind of – they've had some high highs and some some low lows this week, this season. So, I mean, I would put it this way. If TCU is a playoff caliber team, they should win the game. Um, they're probably going to see K-State again in the Big 12 title game, the way things are looking. So, it's it's definitely it's there for the taking. Ten and zero, um, just a remarkable story. I mean, TCU was pretty mediocre the last four years of, of Gary Patterson's time there. So, um, 
this was the this was the moment I think last night's game where you're like, huh, they are really good. They really are. And now Max Duggan hasn't really done much the last two weeks. He might be banged up. Um, but if you can if you can get your defense to play like that, so you know that that's the way you win a game like that. The other thing I'd say about Texas, you mentioned Quinn Ewers. Like that's kind of what I expected coming into the season. I think because of the hype, people forget that he is a freshman. Um, yes, he's technically a redshirt freshman, but he never, he, you know, he's taken fifth fifth string reps at Ohio State last year. So you I know what's interesting to be kind of all in, in, in that was he looked really good in a and basically a quarter and a half against mm-hmm. Alabama. Who honestly, Alabama's not as good as we we thought. It's still Alabama, and it's a big moment, but. He looked really good there, and then he he you know he had a bad mistake against Oklahoma, but other than that, like he threw a pick, he was really good. But obviously, that's a bad Oklahoma team. When you watch the last you know three or four weeks, or at least going back Oklahoma State. Now I'm looking at it. You know, it's like he struggled against Oklahoma State. Was really shaky there. Was really bad last night. Um, I wonder if you're the Texas fan base, you're looking at it going. All right, we got Arch coming in. Like, you know, he complete he's completing out 55% of his passes, 13 touchdowns, six picks. It's, you know, he's he's had it, you know, like you said, he's a young quarterback who has not played that much. And in the middle of it, he got he got injured and you know, missed missed three games. Um, but now I think depending on how he finishes the year, I I could see a lot of people going, all right, Arch is gonna come in and he is going to, I don't want to say be the savior but hit the ground running, which I don't know if many, you know, I think before, I think people are like, oh, we got Quinn. He doesn't need to rush in. Now I think people are looking at this, especially there were a lot of people watching that game and they laid an egg offensively. You got Bijan Robinson, you got Xavier Worthy, you got a tight end who's really dynamic. Um, and I get it. They have a young offensive line, but still, I think to have that kind of skill talent, I mean, you have the, the most talented running back probably in the country. One of the fastest, you know, receivers, one of the most um, skilled tight ends. And to be so, so, you know, dormant and just it's kind of a dud. Again, it's only year two for Steve Sarkeesian. And I know you, you did not expect that much for you expect much from them going into the year. But this was, I, you know, again, I, this was like a, a just kind of like a, a shot of cold water in the face. I mean, I think it was all that dynamic that you're talking about with Arch coming in was always there. Like if he can, you know, best case scenario, he turns out to be the the star that he was projected to be. And we know Arch Manning probably doesn't have, you know, more than most quarterbacks isn't going to mind redshirting a year. Um, and then he turns pro. But this was always the scenario, too, that he just struggles. And in this, I mean, the, the, right, there's nobody more popular than the backup quarterback. And that will especially be true. If the backup quarterback is Arch Manning, his stats are brutal. I mean, I didn't realize this. 55% completions, 13 TDs, 6 interceptions, a 129.5 passer rating. Um, He doesn't have enough attempts to be ranked nationally, but if he were, he would be, uh, let's see here. He would be about uh, 80th. No. Yeah, 80th nationally. And that's with really good skill guys around. Them. Yep. Yep. So that'll be, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I mean, look, I shouldn't have picked them to go four and eight. That was, that was a, that was a dud pick. Unlike some of my other big 12 picks, 
but that, you know, th this is, this was always a possibility. Um, you know, we always do shout outs in the end and I feel like we've already made reference to a couple of them, but there were a lot of people who deserve shout outs off of yesterday. Why don't you start? Well, why don't you start? Well, you got to go with our guy, Jim Mora. I mean, podcast guest, um, obviously took a lot of flack for the way things ended at UCLA. I think would you, would, if I guess said before the season, what's the best case scenario for Jim Moore's first season at UConn? I think I would have said like three and nine. What about you? Probably three and nine, four and eight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're six and five. They're going to a bowl. They beat uh, Liberty the week after Liberty wins at Arkansas. So it's no longer, well, they're doing it against, you know, the dregs of the dregs. Liberty's a pretty good team. And they've done it. I think our um, mailbag reader mentioned this uh, that we listen, we our listener that we read during the week. They've had a lot of injuries. They're starting. Speaking of freshmen, starting a true freshman quarterback. So I mean, to me, it's like between him and Lance Leipold. Who do you who do you give coach? You know, we talked about it on the on the podcast last week. Like it'll be a tough call, but I think it's easy to forget. I mean, UConn didn't even play football in 2020, and when they came back. They were just as terrible as they'd been before that. They fired Randy Edsel two games into last season. Like this should not be happening this quickly. So kudos to him. All right. My my uh shout out of the week is actually gonna be Jeff Halfley from Boston College, who actually lost his team, lost to Jim Morris team not that long ago. They injuries have ravaged their offense, especially their offensive line. They really don't have a starting offensive line at this point, uh, playing a young quarterback. Their starting quarterback's been banged up really for the last two years. But they beat a top 25 NC State team yesterday. They're, they have no chance of getting into a bowl or anything like that. Halfley's uh, tenure so far has been, you know, it's not gone as well as I thought it would have gone. But I, like I said, they've had as much injury issues as probably any program I can think of, especially at, at such a key place like the offensive line. But for them to beat a very talented NC State team, um, shout out to the Boston College Eagles. Shout out as well to Neil Brown at West Virginia. Now, I he's still definitely hot seat candidate, I think. But I think West Virginia fans had pretty much thrown in the towel on him. And then he goes and beats Oklahoma the first time they've beaten Oklahoma since they've joined the Big 12. Um, that was a big, big win for him. And we'll see how he closes down the stretch here. But he definitely needed that one. Um, it's a crazy situation there you, you think neil of all the coaches like why would neil brown have a big buyout in his contract he hasn't done much of anything there but it is indeed 20 million dollars which who knows like we always think all oh, that they're never going to pay that and then somebody does but you know, west virginia is not known as a big money kind of place that's a big number um he needed that let's put it that way all right as always uh what about vanderbilt questions? nobody's going to shout out vanderbilt I'm not because I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.